Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick, graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator, and I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills, with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Chris Eliopoulos, prolific letterer, illustrator of the Ordinary People Change the World series, as well as the co-creator of Xavier Riddle and Secret Museum on PBS Kids, and you're listening to The Marvelous with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelous, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode, and once again, introducing a special guest. I love saying that. It's a fun thing to say. Yes. Before we get into that, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on MDAR social media. Or wherever the heck you're listening to it, but go ahead. Go on Facebook at Facebook.com slash... The Marvelists. Go on Twitter and Instagram at... The Marvelists. You can also find us individually on social media. Myself, I'm on a plethora of social media. Go on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick. And I was not able to secure the name, but I'm on TikTok for some reason. I don't know why, but someone is already at Peter Melnick, so I'm at Peter Melnick, but better. Woof. Seriously. <laughs> also, you can find Eddie on one form of social media, only one in the whole wide world, kind of like Reckless Eric said. I'm going to keep going with that joke until it lands. But it's on Instagram, and that is at... Eddie9193. And also, you can listen to this show on a wide variety of streaming platforms available for all iOS and Android devices. Easy for me to say. Mm -hmm. You can find us on TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Spotify, Podbean, among many, many others. And also, you can find us on iTunes, where you can rate, review, subscribe, and share it on a social media platform. But be sure to five-star the show. Broken ice cream machines, McDonald's, four stars, no. Anyway. Blah, blah, blah. Are we going to Bismarcky this right now? You. Uh-huh. You, you would look really good in one of those Beethoven wigs. i got to tell you that, Eddie. And a big, thick, gold necklace. Eddie, on the other end of the tin can and string, we are joined with a prolific letterer, Chris Eliopoulos. Chris, good evening. Hey guys, how are you? Better Pretty now, good. I think. I welcome, welcome to the uh, fill in the blank train wreck. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, uh, Chris, all good. First off, how did you get your start in the world of lettering comics? Well, um, so I was going to college at the Fashion Institute of Technology. Um, I had a major in uh, graphic design, and I had a minor in illustration. I originally wanted to be a cartoonist, so I was taking a lot of... My parents were basically telling me to get a real job first before you try that cartooning thing. <laughs> and uh, But so one of the classes I was taking was uh, sequential art with a gentleman by the name of Gene Cullen, oh, who yeah. many of you would know wow. from yeah. Golden Age comics. Um and uh, he took us up to Marvel on a field trip one day, and I had found out that same day that I needed to have an internship for my final semester of college. Um, and I saw a guy walk by wearing a ripped T-shirt 
uh, ripped sweatpants and flip flops. And I said, well, I don't, it doesn't require a tie. So maybe I can work here. <laughs> and, um, so I applied and they looked at my portfolio and said, you could become a letterer. So why, why don't you come on an internship? And within two weeks, I was already doing, um, freelance production work, um, as well as interning there. Um, and then instead of going to my graduation, I went to Marvel to go to work. So uh, I worked there for about two years, about, I want to say, like maybe nine months into my Marvel day job. Um, I had been practicing, and, and they were teaching me, and I basically took over as an a in-house letterer. And um, by the end of my term, which was a total of two years, I was uh, the guy in charge of the lettering department, and um, and then I was making enough money doing freelance work. I was making more money freelancing than I was on staff. I went freelance. So that's pretty much how I started. Eddie? Well, that's kind of cool because when you said freelance, I said, yeah, a lot of uh, people, I guess, in that particular field, if not a, a lot of different areas there, that seems to be the, I'm going to say, quote, best way to uh, to get work and con- con- continue working and take on more jobs, and you know, hopefully, it uh, keeps going that way. Better, maybe more so, like you said, than having as it a uh, full-time thing. Yeah, I mean, at the time, basically, they everything was done by hand, so all the lettering was done with pens and ink, and so you'd have to have people who were um, adept at copying other people's style of lettering, um, and so they'd have people on staff to make corrections. Um, nowadays, it's all computers, so you mm-hmm. can just basically hit delete, delete, and enter something in. Um, so they needed people who were skilled that way. And so that's what I was doing on staff. And then at night I would go home and letter books. But like I said, I was making more money at home than I was at the day job. So I finally was like, well, this is ridiculous. I could actually get some sleep if I just freelance and, uh, which I did. And so, and I have been freelance ever since. So, um, and these days, usually every comic company, uh, uses freelance lettering. They don't, I know DC has a couple of people that still work on staff, but uh, for the most part, everybody is freelance. With respect to the different jobs that you've done, uh, projects, and I assume they're different, but I'm just kind of getting that sense of a different range of time that it takes to do, or you only have so much time to do a specific project. So how many days or hours in the day or weeks to you know get a job done, turned in, whatever? Well, in the beginning, like I said, when we were doing by hand, the average was normally about 10 pages lettered a day. Um, I was getting so crazy, and I was so busy at one point. I was doing about, um, I think I was doing 30 books a month mm. uh, uh, by hand. So I was, I was basically doing a 22-page book every day of the week um, and plus more. Um, these days, because of the, the advent of computers, you can pretty much, if you're you know, pretty fast and adept, you can get a book done in four hours, four and a half hours. Um, the average is usually around six hours for most people, if not a, bit, a little bit longer. But um, uh, you know, it, it all depends on the speed and, and your, your uh, shortcuts and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's been, it, it, it changed the speed, but also you know, the ease to... Uh, redo it. So nowadays, because you can do it on computer, uh, you know, writers can go back and then rewrite stuff after it's scripted a number of times, whereas back in the old days, it's down in ink. You're not changing much once it's down. So um, it may take four hours to letter by computer now, but then you're 
probably reworking it another three or four hours after. So it almost comes out to the same amount of time at the end of the day. Were you or are you a good uh, student of you know either penmanship or maybe you had to take uh, manuscript calligraphy? Not at all. I, in <laughs> fact, I remember in grade school, I got such a poor grade in penmanship. The teacher had to like basically reach out to my parents and say, you know, he doesn't have good penmanship. Lettering, hand lettering is actually more of an art form. You're sort of almost like trying to act like a computer uh, in yourself and repeat everything in a consistent manner. So it's almost the same over and over again. Um, so it's sort of, you, you. I guess it's a penmanship thing, but it's also a bit of an art form. Um, the computer stuff is obviously, it's more of a craft now. Like you sort of, every, you know, the font's already made for you. It's just knowing where it goes, how it should look, and making sure that uh, you give the, the writer and the artist what they want. And, you know, you just you mentioned a little while ago about how many books you, you know, you tackle a month. It kind of reminds me of the output of Jack Kirby, you know, in his prime where he would bang out like, you know, X amount of pages a day to do that. And to be completely honest, from the sound of it, you're kind of like the Jack Kirby of lettering when you really think about it. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not. This is what I was told, and I'm going to stand by it. But so Marvel has their own like online um, creator credits page or something like that, or at least they did a while back. And you could basically punch in a person's name and, and see all the credits they have. And at the time, the database was limited to 5,000 credits per person. Um, and they said there's only, there were only two people who passed that 5,000 mark was me and Stan Lee, hmm. so, um, which is kind of cool. But, yeah, there was a, there was a period in the, in the early 90s where, uh, yeah, I was just littering everything under the sun. And then... In the mid two thousands, what are they? What do they call it? The aughts? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had taken over Marvel's lettering pretty much, and what? And I had a bunch of people working for me, and we just were doing everything. So, like, I had a whole bunch of credits that way as well. And it 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 probably eclipsed what I was doing when I was doing by hand thirty books a month. I mean, I the one moment I knew I things were getting a little too far, um, I. Uh, it was a weird time for me. Uh, one of the guys that was working for me had to go on a hiatus because he had um, surgery on his arm, so he couldn't work. So I had to take on his books as well as my own books. <clears throat> and then one of my other guys was missing. or something. I forget how it went down, but then in the middle of all this, my grandmother passed away, and I had to take on this other guy's work, do my work, and fi- figure out some other work to get done. And in the three-day period that we did wakes and a funeral, I lettered 14 books. Wow. Um, and managed to go to the wakes and go to the funeral um, and not collapse myself. Um, and then I realized maybe I pushed myself a little too thin, and then I sort of brought more people on. But, uh, yeah, there was a period of time where I was doing probably more than 30 books a month myself by computer. And like you had mentioned as well, you're not just a letterer, but you're also a cartoonist. And one of the things about your cartoonist work that I really enjoy is the playfulness and fun that they exhibit. And one of the examples for myself that I know so well is the Savage Dragon Funnies. And yeah. there's just something about, you know, the, the work you did, you know, with Eric on the Savage Dragon stuff. It's just so much fun. And, yeah. Yeah, he, um, it's, it's interesting. You know, Eric is a big fan of old-time comics like that's his thing like you know as we all are like we all 
love the time period that we came up in. Like mine was like the mid to late 80s, that time period, the John Byrne era, the Walt Simonson, the Frank Miller, like all that stuff kind of coalesced right for me. And that's like my dream spot, right? And his is a little bit earlier, and he even loves way back comics. And back in the old, old days, they used to have the main comic story, but then they'd have filler in the back that would, you know, they somebody would write a prose story or they would do a couple other funny comics. And he decided that he wanted to do some of that instead of putting ads in the back of his book, maybe do something else. Um, and I'd always been saying, like, I want to be a cartoonist. This is what I want to do. And um, he kindly one day just said, I'll give you two pages a month. Do whatever you want with it. Draw whatever you want. Uh, by the way, the first one's due tomorrow. So... Uh, <laughs> as is comics. Um, so I basically just did the only thing I could think of at that moment, which was to write up um, like a comic strippy kind of story about two, you know, college age guys based on me and a friend. And, um, and I went from there. And so that desperate times series lasted like a, pl- a couple of years. It, it turned into a, I had to own book for a little while and um, which was crazy because it was in the early nineties where, like they would, they could sell toilet paper and it would sell you know five thousand copies minimum, um, so uh, you know um, so yeah I just lucky thanks to him like I actually got to do work on something I loved every month just to make sure that I got better and better and better and um, eventually landed some other work but uh, it was all because he just said here's two pages get going and for people like myself you know you and eric are synonymous with each other and the you know how did you two become friends and what was the first work you did together so um back in the day um i had been working again freelance for marvel i was doing some spider-man stuff i had worked on um tom mcfarland's last issue of spider-man uh adjectiveless spider-man um, and then Eric was supposed to take over, he was on Amazing, and then he was supposed to take over this book, and he had done, I'm trying to remember, it was like a one-shot, it was a Beast and Spider-Man issue of this, and so they asked me to fill in and letter that issue, and um, we got into talking, because he wanted to do the sound effects himself, because he didn't like the way they were done by somebody else, he, he sort of liked that workman style that you saw with uh, Walt Simonson on Thor, sort of like big, giant sound effects, and um, so, uh, when it came time to, for him to take over, uh, the writing and drawing of Spider-Man, he asked me to come on and take over, um, because I kind of understood what he was going for. And so I started to give him what he asked for in those moments, like the sound effects. And I would send him samples, like, is this what you want? And so we started talking, we, he would just call me up and we would go over things, what he was looking for. Um, and then right in the middle of that, his house burned down, um, and he lost like all of this work and all this time and original art and whatever. And um, but we became like fast friends over that. And soon after, he decided to join the Image Guys and go off and do his own book. And so I think I was like the fifth person to find out. Besides the 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 creators themselves, I was like one of the first people to get word that Image was being formed. Um, he called me up and just said, you know, we're starting this new company. We're leaving Marvel. Don't tell anybody. Um, I want you to letter my book. Um, and, uh, let's go. And so literally, um, we would talk on the phone just about every single day after that. Like we were just like best buds, just chatting about everything. We would gossip about the industry while we did the work. 
Um, and, you know, then we started hanging out, like, with conventions. He would come, if he came out here, we would go to a convention. He would stay at my house, still does. Um, but, yeah, it was just one of those moments where it was just like, uh, I gave him what he needed. Uh, we were also friends, and, and it continues to this day. Like, we sit at conventions together, even though we don't even work together. Um, we're sort of like the Batman and Robin of comics. We just sort of look out for each other. I was at a uh, I was at New York Comic Con 2018, and I think you went to lunch or you were doing a panel or something. Mm-hmm. But I was doing an interview with Eric. I was sitting in your spot, and again, yeah, you know, you two are synonymous. Your table is literally propped right next to his, mm-hmm. and you know, a couple people walk up to me and they're like, "Hi, Chris, I love your work." I'm like, "No, no, I'm not." I'm not. <laughs> So they never do that when I'm sitting at the table. I wish I would do that. I think that means Peter was too close. (laughs) One of the things is, you know, in comics, like we don't really know sometimes the faces behind, you know, the characters sometimes, you know? Yeah. And like, I remember I walked up once to a guy and I go, Scott Snyder, I love your work. And he's like, no. Yeah, usually it's fun because we all kind of visit each other and everybody sits down or other people come to interview and, you you know, like it was funny, like, I mean, even, I don't know if it was that year or a couple, of, no, it was probably earlier, probably 2016 or 2015, whatever it was, 2015, um, I was sitting with Eric and um, I went off to go somewhere, probably to get him food because I'm always getting him food at the convention because he's always doing commissions, like he's always drawing for something, like he just goes in and the minute he sits down to the minute... The convention ends. He's drawing for somebody. So uh, I'll go and get him food. And, like, Seth Meyers came by to say hi, and I wasn't there. So it was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's always that moment where you're just like, who is it? Is this the, really the person? Am I allowed to, you know, ask them if they are who they are? Yeah, exactly, because then the other side of the coin is not to assume that that is the person. And you say, oh, hello, Chris. And the answer could be, uh, yeah, I'm the only one here, and my yeah. name is in front so you don't know which way to go as a as a fan kind of thing. Yeah. But you get over that. Look, I know. at a convention, that's the thing, right? It's just we're all fans of comics, so why worry so much about that kind of stuff? It's like, yeah. I mean, I mean sometimes like you I, know, I hide myself from the public, so, like, you know, it's, you know, I'm fine that nobody re- can recognize me, you know, easily. On the uh, websites for the conventions, like they'll have you know announcements and they'll show the person that's going to be there, and that's been really helpful in recent years. Although when uh, Jim Calafore was at a con, it was a picture of him and his cat, and I wasn't sure who is Jim in the photo. Of course, uh, it could have been the cat. You never know. <laughs> I've, I've told him uh, repeatedly. I'm really disappointed that you know he can't bring the cat to the con because I would love to meet that cat as well. He should just so. bring a picture and like on a on a stick and just carry it around. That's and... it. Absolutely, yeah. I actually know what I did for a while. I was I, is uh, I I print out my, like I have a single avatar for like Twitter and Facebook and whatever. Um, I actually printed out and put it on my um, my badge because um, sometimes people can recognize you by the badge icon, the avatar versus your real picture. So <laughs> that's, that's true. That's absolutely true. And oh, yeah. one of you know again with the whole convention life, it's kind of funny because you know a lot of creators that I know they'll say. You know, I hate the whole aspect of being behind here because I can't get to explore and do all the other stuff. And right, right, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I tend to try and get up and at least do a circle or two just to say hi to people. Because again, conventions sometimes it's 
you know, you go up and see people you work with day and night and you never see in person. So um, it's a great way to sort of catch up with some old friends. And um, I'm not one for the bar scene, so it's easier for me to see somebody during the day. And um, Plus, I got Eric staying with me, and we usually just head home, and he does commissions. And um, uh, yeah, he, he is a machine with the commissions because I've seen him like, just go all in on what he's doing. Oh, yeah. Like, there's been days where he's like, oh, yeah, I didn't go to the bathroom yet today. <laughs> like, he didn't even get up to go pee or anything like that. He just sits there and works. See, that was another reason I was thinking of getting up, stretch your legs, walk around, you know, circulation, yeah. pee. Yeah. Yeah, the, the necessities. And But he sounds like he kind of shuts it off, goes into full gear and does his thing, and, you know, then it yeah. comes later. I get it. Yeah, but people appreciate it. You know, like, that's the thing. They They, you know, every year people just come racing up to his table, looking to, for commissions, looking to talk. And, and, you know, he's one of those great creators that, like, everybody assumes he's not a nice guy. I, for some reason, I have no clue why that is. But they come up, and he will talk to anybody about comics for as long as you want. Mm. He'll draw whatever you want. You know, it's, it's not a thing. And, you know, but, so he's a good guy, good friend. Uh, Chris, as far as your faves, I know uh, from some information I have here, Bloom County, Ack. Mm-hmm. Uh, Calvin Hobbs, uh, any others that you're particularly fond of, whether it's comic strips or you're, you know, reading your own, uh, whatever comic books you're, you're into the more more than anything else. Well, initially when I was really, uh, what got me wanting to be a cartoonist was peanuts initially. I mean, that was the big one as growing up. And then, like I said, um, and then I, I, you know, I discovered Bloom County when I was in like middle school, high school, which, you know, was like, Oh my God, you can, that's uh, like, Bloom County was the first comic strip I laughed out loud at. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like I said, Calvin and Hobbes came along. But there was, like, Pogo was in the middle of Crazy Cat. Like, you start to become, uh, like, you start to become, uh, I don't know what the term is, but you, you, you sort of really start to appreciate comic strips more and the art more and the writing more. Um, and whereas something like Pogo, I can't, like, wrap my head around all the text and all the references to the time period. I still appreciate the art. Crazy Cat... Um, is amazing to look at. It, I can't say it's one of my favorites, but I appreciate it. Um, and then, you know, like, it, it's weird. I was never really a comic book guy growing up. Um, when I was a little kid, my father every Saturday would take my sister and I to the local candy store and say, you, you both get to have one item. Whatever you want, you can get. And even at a young age, I guess I must have been smart. Um, my thought was I would get a comic book because – that way, I could just keep having it. Like, I wouldn't, like, my sister would get a candy bar and it'd be gone before we left the, the <laughs> shop. I would have this comic book. And in fact, I still have them. I have them in my studio right now, those original comic books I got. But I fell out of it. I didn't really follow comic books. I really fell in love with comic strips and cartoons and stuff like that. And then in like 84, uh, I made a friend in high school, um, this guy named Mike Jung, and we were in the band together. And he loved comic books, and he wanted to introduce me to comics. And he showed me his brother's collection of, like, uh, Burn X-Men issues. And I was like, wow, this art is amazing. I love this. Um, and we would start collect. I started collecting comics then. I started to read them. I, I, I will say I was probably more of a John Byrne fan than a comic book fan. Like, I like John's work. Um, what's interesting about Mike is his brother – Turned out he's a he's a Hollywood writer. He co-wrote the third Star Trek movie um, that came out recently, like a couple of years ago. Um, that was uh, Into Darkness, right? No, Into Darkness, Darkness is that the one? Yeah. Two. 
he wrote it with whoever the the actor from who plays Scotty, um, which is kind of cool. Uh, Mike, it turns out, is now a children's book author, so he does that. Um, but so back then, so like in the like eighty four, eighty five, I was just about to graduate high school. I like found comic books for a little while, but as soon as I hit college, I went right back to comic strips. So there was like a two year period that. Um, I love John Byrne books, and um, in fact, this past October at the New York Comic Con, I finally got to meet him in person um, and talk to him for a little bit. Um, I've known Terry Austin for years, and we've been friends and hung out, but I never met John before, so um, it's kind of cool to meet the people that inspired you to join the, the business that you're in. Absolutely. I'm a big John Byrne fan to the point where it was all I knew his work as being just Marvel. Then I saw, oh, he's done some DC stuff, Superman in the 80s. Oh, wait a minute, uh, Doom Patrol, uh, Lab Rats, and then and some other them. independent stuff as well. What the heck? Okay, so I got a lot of it. Next Men, hey, there we go. Yeah, yeah. I actually mentioned to uh, Eddie the other day because he wasn't aware of it, but uh, Chris, are, have you seen uh, Byrne's fan fiction of the uh, X-Men Elsewhere? I've been following it. Um, I'm on like one of the on Facebook, one of the John Byrne boards. Um, I forget the name of it, but they've been posting that stuff, and you know it's funny. It's like you follow it, and you're like, well, "What's the purpose?" But it's kind of cool to see him doing stuff. I just wish he was doing like the you know the real stuff, like you know getting out and doing a a book book. But it's cool. What do you think of it? I, I haven't read it. I actually just I ended up downloading all the pages and, you know, saved them together because I'm going to just sit and do a binge read of them one day. Right. But as I've been, you know, downloading the pages, you know, it, it spoils the story for me. And when those two teams showed up, wow. I know. Like, I've been sort of, like, seeing it sporadically. Like, I haven't done that where I've just downloaded the whole thing and look at that and, you know, take it, you know, like, read through it. Um, I tend to be, you know, look. Again, just like I said earlier, like I tend to live in a time period of when I fell into comics, and I loved his stuff, you know, in the early to mid '80s. You know, so like I went from X Men, like the big book for me was FF, and then Alpha Flight, um, and then it was weird to like work at Marvel and see pages of Namor coming in, and he was using like this duotone paper thing um, at the time. So I sort of I, I, I always tend to go back to that early 80s, and, like, I hate that whole thing when people say, I miss your old stuff, but uh, I, I miss his old stuff. <laughs> I, I kind of concentrate on the old stuff, like the the um, the IDW uh, um, giant, those giant book reprint books where they do artist editions, where they uh, print out the actual pages uh, is amazing. I love the, I've got the X-Men, I've got the FF book, i got the Marvel superheroes one he did, so... I'm hoping for more. Yeah. This will be the second episode in a row that I bring it up, but I actually ended up tracking down for Eddie a uh, Fantastic Four signed by Byrne, and it's one of those where he signed it, I guess, back in the 80s or 90s. You you know, there's no signature on the front, but you open up inside and right in the uh, the bottom, his right. little signature is there, and it's so cool to see. That's cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. I was so stupid, too. Like I was sitting and talking to him a while and telling him, like, you know, basically, you got me into comic books, and... I wouldn't have this career if I didn't know you and your art. And, and, and then I didn't get them to sign anything. I mean, I'm not one for signatures. Like, I mean, like once you're in the industry, it's sort of a little weird. It's like a professional kind of faux pas, I think. Mm. Um, but it would have been nice. I think I, I bought a book. It was like a, it's this Fantastic Four collection from IDW. I think it's a limited edition. And 
he signed that, so I feel like I've got my signature from him. So, um, it's funny because like there are people in comics that you know I I would love to get a picture with, but you know as a fan myself they they don't do it like certain ones like I'd love to get a picture with Duranko just because. Oh, he doesn't take pictures. He doesn't so. Classic Storenko, he will not take a picture with you unless you're one of two things. A, somebody in the military, or B, pretty. a really hot woman. I was going to say, yeah. Right? So, <laughs> guess what I'm not? <laughs> well, put on a dress and see what happens. He was disgusted when I brought up that idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you dress to the nines like he, uh, every time, the hair is just so, and it's like a, a white suit minus the tie, but he's all class in that respect, so, I mean, I don't know. Both of yes. you will appreciate this. I love uh, Jim Steranko's work at 1980s Wonder Man. I just okay. love it. You know, he was so great as a member of the Avengers, and just how he dresses is Wonder Man. That's hey. a joke. It's styling, baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird. Like, I did, uh, I was, it was funny, I was at, I think I was at, was it this convention? Yeah, it had to be this one or previous one. I forget. Um, convention. Um, it might have been two years. I don't remember anymore. My mind is going... Um, I was talking to someone, and I, I real, also like there's a whole storm of guards and people coming along, and they were holding people up. And it turned out like Frank Miller was sitting down to do a signing, and they weren't allowing people to take pictures while there. And I was like, "Oh, that's so interesting." And I, I was, you know, as a pro, I was talking to another pro, and I think it was like Art Adams or something like that. And we were just chatting, and I had my phone out, and the guy was like, "Don't you take any pictures?" And I'm like. What? Please. Like, what's funny is, like, you can't explain to this guard in five seconds that, you know, I've talked to Frank personally. Like, I've, I actually, I, like, one of the best stories, if you've ever read his Daredevil book, uh, a lot of it takes place at Josie's Bar. Do you know any of that? Vaguely. I've read the run. I haven't read it in a while, but this okay. is before Born Again, right? Oh, yeah. This is, like, in, in his original run, um, a lot of times it would take place in Josie's Bar. Well, it's based on a real place. There is a Josie's Bar in the city. Um, and so um, Jimmy Palmiotti and a few other people had like a book launch party there. Um, and so I had gone and Frank was there and he and I were just basically sitting there for like an hour, I would say, talking comic books and, you know, like having a drink and just sort of like discussing how we do. Like he was telling me about how. He was doing like the Sin City artwork, how he now stands up and he's got this big brush and he draws like three times up and he's like, I use my whole arm and he was all excited about the art. And it was like an amazing thing to be talking to the guy in the bar about the art that he created that was taking place in that bar. Mm. So it was just really very meta. Um, That's so cool. So I didn't really need to take a picture at the comic book convention of Frank, but it was funny. I- Myself, I do have a picture with Frank. I, and my story of how I ran into Frank Miller, I ran into him three times over the course of six months, and it was all in New York City, every single time I've been down there. Um, first time I saw him was New York Comic Con, right? You know, I won a raffle to get a print signed by him by uh, Dark Horse. Mm-hmm. Second time was when was uh, at Mike Carbonero's uh, Big Apple Comic Con. And then when I finally got a picture with him, it was uh, walking out of Midtown Comics, I start walking down the street. I look to my left, and I see a guy wearing a Wonder Woman 75th anniversary T-shirt, and he's got the hat on, he's got the glasses, and I'm like, wait a minute. And I you know, quickly walk up. I go, excuse me, sir, can, uh, are you Frank Miller? Can I please get a picture? Yes. Boom, done. So I'm like, awesome. 
He said, next but, next time we get a restraining order after three times, geez. It's, it's potential. <laughs> but <laughs> this is a really, you know, very nice guy. He is. Um, very. You know, it's so funny. It's like, you know, I, I, I think they like to play up like the Dark Knight, you know, Daredevil, cranky. Uh, I've known him to be nothing but a really nice guy. He didn't have any reason to sit and talk to me for that long. Um, I was just a lettering guy, and you know he had done a pinup at that moment for uh, for Savage Dragon, and Eric had shown me that it wasn't out yet, and that's how I kind of broached the subject with him, um, and then we just started talking art. But he had no reason to even treat me with any bit of respect, but he did. So that's the thing about comics, right? I mean, for the most part, most everybody I've worked with, talked to, have been really good people who just love the art form and love to just talk about it. Well, that's it. You're on a common playing field. Uh, you know, there's different levels and aspects. In fact, that's going to throw me back a little bit to to the strips that when you mentioned uh, Bloom County and Calvin and Hobbes being being different visually, but uh, I think on a different level. And what made me think of that when you started talking about those was another one that may be around at the same time, but it was also appealing to a different level, and that would be uh, Doonesbury. Yeah, I mean, they came out in the early 70s. It's, you know, like, I mean, that, their, his big heyday was was Watergate. Um, yep. But in the beginning, it's funny because Doonesbury was not artistically very good. Like, he wasn't really good in the beginning. He de- definitely developed over the years, but his writing is, is amazing. And, um, he, I mean, obviously he inspired Bloom County, and I think uh, Breathed would agree that he basically was ripping him off for the first couple of years of his strip. Um but yeah, I mean, all I mean, I like I could go through the history of comics and the strips I love. I mean, there was there's one that I go back to, and probably nobody knows it. It, it was like a 1940 strip called Barnaby. Uh, it was drawn by Crockett Johnson, who did um, Harold the Purple Crayon. I I recognize that I one growing that. up. Yeah, yeah, and so it's just an amazing strip if you go back and read it, and it's just a well written. Uh, you know, his his style is, of drawing is very like one-dimensional, two-dimensional. It's like sort of just very, it's all just side shots. Like it's always profile shots, never really, you know, anything dimensional. It's very flat in its drawing, but it's just brilliant in the writing and it doesn't get enough credit. But, you know, you sort of learn these things later in life. Like I, obviously I was not born in a time to know these strips, but you discover them later on and Doonesbury, I had no clue. Like, you know, when I was a kid, I'm sure you were the same way. I had no clue about politics or what all this meant. And yep, right. you didn't really follow it until you get older and go, oh, that's what he's doing. But one thing we can all universally agree on is lasagna is delicious, as Garfield has insinuated over the years. I hate Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And that was, I mean, that was the other one. I, I like Garfield, but not, I didn't find it as innovative. Uh, as the others, um, I collected the books because being a cartoonist, you just you grab everything, and you know the art was was really good, and I enjoyed it. So, you know, it's one of those. I, I think real quick, all I can think of right now is uh, Daniel Kimball Smith. I think was the one that wrote about it with Garfield, but that's a meal for a family. That lasagna, that's going to a cat. That's so wasteful. <laughs> <laughs> but. There's a comic strip that you've done, and I don't remember the name of it offhand, but it's the one with the Grim Reaper. Oh, yeah, Misery Loves Sherman. I love that. That book got flung at me by uh, Eric Larson at uh, New York Comic Con one year. (laughs) I guess you guys had a 
surplus of excess stuff that he didn't want to bring along, and that book got thrown at me as well as the uh, little Grim Reaper uh, keychain. Oh, that's which funny. I'm still yeah. On, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we. Um, well, there's a couple of stories with that one. So, in typical fashion, so I started this strip. Um, basically, the idea was I wanted. I, you know, I had the whole idea, like, you only get better if you keep doing something, right? If you keep working at it. And yeah. I felt like if I had forced a deadline on myself that I would have to do a five-strip week every week, um, it would force me to get better and force me to write and force me to keep doing this stuff. So I did the strip for a couple of years. Um, but as I was going along, people kept saying, we want a book. Give us a book. We want a book. We want a book. So finally, I kind of reached out, and this will teach you about, like, online believability and how to market yourself and how to make sure that you, you know, do the right thing. I put out a call and said, okay, if, if I were to make a book, how many people would buy it? And like all these people were like, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it. And it sounded like it was like so high. And then I said, if I do a little plush keychain, how many people would get it? And like everybody was into it. So I said, fine, what I'm going to do is I'm going to print out um, like a thousand books. I'll do like a thousand of these keychains and I'll sell them. And so I bought, you know, I had them made, and then I put out the call. I said, if you would like to buy it, I will ship, you know, a, a book and a keychain to you for like, I don't know, it was like 12 bucks. It was like, you know, barely nothing. And I think I got a total of 30 orders, mm-hmm. and it was just like, oh, that'll teach me. Like, get the orders before you order the books. Um, and so uh, I had all of this excess, and... Um, I decided, well, I'll bring them to conventions. I can sell them at the conventions. Um, people will buy at conventions. Um, and I was at the New York Comic Con, and I had the Death Plush and the books, and it was um, Kids Day. Like Sundays, they always do Kids Day. And this father comes by with his like five-year-old in the stroller, and he asks what this thing is, and he goes, what is it? Is it like a, mo- a monkey skeleton? I'm like... Oh, no, it's like the Grim Reaper. The, you know, he's like, what? I go, well, you know, it's the living embodiment of death in plush form. And it, he went off on me about it being Kids Day and how I'd be selling death to kids and <laughs> I should be ashamed of myself. And, and, you know, I'm all taken aback. And just at that moment, this young girl, I, I can only say she was probably only 18 or so, um, was in a, a costume, a cosplay, and her top was literally all she was wearing were pasties and like a fishnet shirt over it. And she was wearing like a, um, a wig that was like, um, like one of those, uh, rainbow, um, afros or whatever. And this guy was like, Oh my God. And he was like Googling over this young girl. And this is a guy like, who's like a 40 year old guy who's now drooling over this girl. And then telling me, I I'm, doing bad by kids on kids day. So I was like, yeah, all right, I'm going to take this with a grain of salt. But, um, needless to say, I still have a ton of books in my garage and I still have a bunch of plushes. So if anybody wants any, let me know. I'm interested. Here we go. I'll, I'll throw them at you. There we go. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, Eric's got a pretty good arm though. Just saying. Yeah. Did he like well you in the head with it? I, bl- <laughs> it was pretty damn close. It was, <laughs> it caused it to be that memorable for me. And honestly, that whole exchange of everything that was happening made me into a fan of both of you guys afterwards. I'm like, yeah, these are the guys I'm going to see every time I go to this convention now. So. Yeah. I think I probably told him, I was like, I just want to get rid of these. Just give them away. And he was like, sure. <laughs> well, hey, we'll have to arrange for a, for a meeting or a pickup because you're in, uh, I think, is it Bergen County, New Jersey? I am. I am. Yep. And that's for my brother, and that's where I had been, too. So uh, we're not far off from each other. Okay. We'll have to, we'll have to arrange a... 
a soprano style handoff. We're only we're <laughs> only about an hour and a half trip uh, ride right away. Okay. Remember, six go. feet though, just fling them at each other. That's it. I know. I'll have to leave it on the side of the road, and you'll have to come by and pick it up after. Wearing gloves and and sanitizing wipe to uh, yeah wipe it down. But remember, you have to wear the mask. I yeah. I bought myself a mask recently, and I had to steal the idea, borrowing it from Stephen from uh, We Hate Movies, but. I now own a Bane mask. It's like it's a little cloth mask, and it's got the uh, crab thing in the middle. So now I can just, you know, shoehorn over and over my uh, Bane impression, which is pretty good, I must say. I say, are you like really do the deep, growly voice? Oh, you better believe it. <laughs> anyway, That's um, cool. one of the other things with your work that you've done at Marvel is you've been able to do stuff such as the uh, the Franklin Richards uh, mm-hmm. Fantastic Four book, but the one that really caught my attention was one of the, I believe it was Poe Dameron number one, mm-hmm. and you have a story at the back involving BB-8, mm-hmm. and that's part of the Star Wars canon. I so, know, cool. How weird is it to realize that that story, in turn, kind of, you know, puts in effect everything that happens in the Star Wars movies and books and games, etc.? Because one little action in that technically causes everything that happens. I know. It's it's a weird, weird, like, you know, you, I grew up, like, again, I was, I think, nine years old when the original Star Wars movie came out, like, and I fell in love. Like, I was, like, as most kids my age were. And the fact that you've got something that is considered part of the Star Wars universe proper, and, like, you can go on to Wikipedia and see it, and it's listed as sort of, like, canon and, it kind of throws you for a loop. Um, mm. And what's funny is I used, uh, I did, I've done a number of stories for them, and I snuck in uh, friends' names uh, for, like, planets or stations or people, um, and uh, they're very excited because they basically live in the Star Wars universe now. Um, I don't know That's if you ever so listened cool. to, there's a podcast called Star Wars Minute. I have. Uh, and uh, Pete the Retailer is one of the guys, and Alex Robinson is the other. So one of the characters' names is Pete the Retalia. So that's his character. And then I have a base named um, uh, LX Robinson 5. So um, I, get, I get to name people. And then so they're now canon. Like they're in the universe. So they're excited. I'm excited because I've got like a story that is now considered something that somebody else could build upon. You know? I know, like, uh, J.J. snuck in, like, a Beastie Boys reference as one of the uh, main, or not main characters, but one of the uh, X-Men, or, X, wow, X-Wing, there we go. There X-Wing go. pilots. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're, crossing the, we're crossing streams now. Uh, right. But he, you know, snuck in a Beastie Boys reference as an X-Wing pilot, and it was kind of cool to see that. And mm-hmm. there's certain, uh, I'm not at liberty to say, but there's, like, certain actors and certain artists that actually even showed up in, you know, Rise of Skywalker. It's kind of cool to know that. Yeah. I mean, everybody's a geek when you come down to it about this stuff. Um, I mean, you hear of these actors who are like, I'll just come on and play a stormtrooper. You don't have to tell anybody. Like, wasn't Daniel Craig in, like, the first one as a yeah. storm, as the stormtrooper in Rays, which was captured? And um, you just kind of go, like, wow, this is so weird that people love it so much they're willing to just... I mean, look... When they came to me and said, do you want to do a story? It was like, are you kidding? Yeah. Like, how do you say it's, no to that? 
I know uh, I, years ago I did an interview with uh, Mark Wade after the uh, Princess Leia miniseries came out, and you know I brought that up to him. I'm just like, what is that like knowing that? And, and even he was like, it's pretty damn cool. <laughs> and when you think about it, really, you're, uh, the BB-8 story, by the way, did that take place before or after uh, Force Awakens? So that's the funny part. Anytime I tried in my stories to lock it into a time period, Lucasfilm pushed back and said, don't tell us when it, like, don't indicate when it happens. They want it to be very nebulous. So even right. I don't technically know when it's supposed to take place. Because I was going to chastise you for Han Solo dying. No. <laughs> it's probably my fault anyway. I mean, look, everybody else is blaming me. Why not? Um, no, it's, it's, so it's weird. So, like, you know, in my mind, you, I mean, in these different stories, I kind of have an idea of when it takes place. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think, which, which BBH story, which one are you looking at? Because I have, like, three or four of this, them. So. The one I'm thinking of is the one with the two droids that, or the droid that BB-8 helps uh, the X-Wing pilot go on a date with the, another X-Wing pilot. Oh, right, right. So, yeah, I, I figured that one took place. Um, some, somewhere during The Force Awakens, like, in the base. Like, on, well, I can't on, blame you for him. Right? That's where I thought it was. I don't, you know, again, they tried to say don't lock it down, so, um, you know, like, I, I saw it as them, like, kind of preparing while, while our heroes were running around the galaxy, they were back at this base kind of setting things up, so... <laughs> That's all I can tell you. They will right. tell you, Lucasfilm will tell you differently. They'll say, we don't know exactly when it takes place. But all of them, I've tried, on all the different stories that I've done, I, try, I you know, initially try to lock it down into a certain time period, and they've asked not to do that. So. Eddie? Chris, any other work that uh, might be coming up, or what you're doing with yourself in these modern times? Yeah, so, uh, well, like you said earlier, we're doing, so Brad and I are still doing the Ordinary People Change the World series, which is a bunch of children's books. We just came out with our 20th, which was I Am Leonardo da Vinci. Um, we have two coming out in October. One is Ben Franklin, the other is Anne Frank. Um, I just came out with a book this week as we're recording called The Yawns Are Coming. Um, I'm currently working on its sequel, which will be out next year. Um, and then Brad and I are co-creators and executive producers of Xavier Riddle and the Secret Museum, which you can catch on PBS Kids or the PBS Kids app or even online on their website, so, um, which is going strong. Um, and then me and my guys are still lettering a bunch of comics for Marvel. So we're still going. How did that come about with PBS Kids? So, um, so we've been doing these I Am, you know, this Ordinary People Change the World books. And we were trying to look around for somebody that might want to make a TV show. Um, and what's interesting is the VP at PBS knew Judd Winnick. And Judd went to, is a friend of mine, but he's also a college roommate of Brad Meltzer. So he kind of put them together. So Linda, who is the, the VP at PBS, kind of said, hey, do you have anything going on? And Brad said, we have this idea for a TV show. And then he and I developed the concept, and we sent it to uh, to them, and they came back and said, um, basically she said, we're going to get you to do a pilot. Whatever this TV show is, it has to look like Chris's artwork, whatever you do. 
So um, we went to the drawing board and, and basically wrote up the pilot. Um, I, we hired an animation company. I taught them all how to draw like me, in, in a sense. And then um, we presented the pilot. Uh, they did you know, market research and they do all the testing and stuff and said, we love it, let's go. And so it was almost as like, simple as that. It was, just, it was more time waiting for them to, to give us an answer than it took to make it. Um, and now we've been on since uh, November going strong. We've had a movie, a one-hour special, and we have like 72 episodes in the first year alone, so we're cruising. Were there any particular favorites growing up with PBS from when you were a kid? Oh, God, yeah. And well, my mother says, when people ask that, um, so I was like three years old when Sesame Street first came on, um, and she said basically Sesame Street turned into my babysitter. She would just plop me down in front of the TV in front of Sesame Street and go and, you know, do the dishes or vacuum in the living room, and I would just sit entranced by uh, Sesame Street. Um, I loved Mr. Rogers. Like I always say, like, I learned my alphabet and my numbers from Sesame Street, but I got my morals from Mr. Rogers. Um, And then for some goofy reason, I loved the electric company. Yeah. And it was the first time I discovered Spider-Man. So, uh... Uh, Sorry, that was the first time you discovered Spider-Man. There you go. Yeah. So I had, you know, like I went when I was, I have a picture of me as a kid at a drugstore. They had a Spider-Man meet and greet, um, and I only knew him from an electric company. So the fact that he didn't speak didn't bother me. (laughs) (laughs) I thought (laughs) thought bubbles that went over his head, but would have been uh, nice. Yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, geez. I'm and I do. It is in my my archives. Growing up as a kid, I had have. An Electric Company album that, of course, starts off with was the character's name Maria. Hey, you guys! Yeah, yeah. Love that. And, and if you Morgan Freeman was on there, yeah, Easy Reader, Easy Reader, Spidey Super Stories. Yep. So yeah, so it was. Uh, those were the ones that really got me going as a kid. So um, you know, and it's weird because our our TV show launched fifty years and one day after the premiere of Sesame Street. So it was sort of very dubious and interesting beginning to the show and. We, uh, we did our launch event at the Library of Congress, which was, like, really cool. Um, but it's all due to Brad Meltzer. Brad, yeah. Brad knows everybody, and he's the big shot. I'm just sort of sitting on his coattails as we move forward. So, so let me back up real quick and just add hashtag Marita Moreno. I had to think of that. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's like all, the, all these people that you know today as famous actors were once on Electric Company. Yeah. Even Spider-Man, and, right? Now he's got a big movie franchise. Who knew back in the day mm-hmm. the guy from Electric Company would ever grow up to make big movies? But uh, And in regards to the books that you're doing with Brad, what is like the one that when you did it you were the most excited to work on? Um, for me, there were two that were, well, three that were really big. Um, earlier on, we did Jim Henson, who I'm a big fan of, obviously, speaking of Sesame Street. like I love the Muppets. Um, I was a big fan of Jim Henson's and, you know, the Labyrinth and, um, you know, the Dark Crystal. Like, I, I, those were my wheelhouse growing up. Um, Have you been to the uh, Museum of the Moving Images Henson exhibit? Well, what's interesting is before it was fully completed, um, we had an event there. Um, I, got to, I did an event uh, with, um, with them. Um, they brought me out there. It was an interview with me on stage. Um, it was funny because I told this story. So when I was a kid, my sister went to school. She was friends with the gentleman who played Bob on uh, Sesame Street. And right. 
one day he invited my sister and I to come to Sesame Street. So at 10 years old, I got to go visit Sesame Street. And um, uh, I got to visit this. I, like, I went in Oscar the Grouch's can. <laughs> I saw Carol Spinney walking around with just legs on a big bird. I saw Snuffleupagus hanging from the ceiling. I saw the actors. It was just it was an amazing day. Um, and I just remember being driven by Bob McGrath to the set to, to, to see the show and him saying, okay, I have to practice my lines. You have to be quiet. And I was telling Craig Sherman, who uh, headed up this thing, about that story. And so he surprised me and had Bob McGrath show up for the event. Wow. Um, and so, like, it was one of the best days of my life to have Bob there. And we chatted and we signed books together. Um, and we talked about my life since then. And, like, I drew him in this book. And so it was such an amazing experience. And so they showed me around um, as they were working on it. They were just putting in the, the, the Muppets and stuff like that. So it wasn't fully complete, but I got to see some of it in the making, um, which is great. Um, but so, and then the other books, I had, uh, when we first started the series, I had said, here are the two people I want to do. I want to do Neil Armstrong and Walt Disney, because I'm a Disney fanatic, and I was a super huge um, uh, space buff. Like, I was so into the Apollo program, and so having done those two books and watching them turn into one of the two bestsellers uh, of our series has been a joy. So um, I think Walt and, and Neil were the big ones for me. And isn't it weird to realize, by the way, that technically you work for Disney when you do stuff for Marvel? It is weird, you know, it's, and it's weird in so many different ways, because, like, we had to go through Disney to get approvals for this book and for Henson. Um, but then I'm like, well, I'm also working with you on the other end. You know, I'm, I, I mean, technically I'm a freelancer, I'm a contracted freelancer, but I'm, you know, it's doing work for Disney. So, you know, um, it's weird. I've even done some, I did some freelance um, imagineering work for them. I did some lettering design work for them. So it's it's a weird world to work for all the people that you kind of grew up on Marvel, Disney, you know, uh, you know PBS Kids. It's just it's I'm living like the life. It's so cool to see, especially you know, as a fan of all this stuff, where you know it's it's gone from like its humble beginnings to where it's at now. And did you ever expect to see like Marvel, especially? attain the heights that it's gotten in the past, you know, five years alone. No, you know, like, again, we grew up like the outcasts. Like, you know, you didn't tell people you read comics because they would make fun of you. And, and you know, you were like the losers who liked, you know, and they, oh, you like the superheroes, oh, you know. And I remember, like, my friend Mike, we would sit and read comic books and people would, like, mock us mercilessly. And those are the same guys who are now my age wearing Captain America shirts around the Disney parks. And you're just like, oh. Now it's okay, huh? Um, but yeah, yeah, I never expected the rise that would happen. Um, but it goes to show you, though, I mean, the one thing that worked was that they were smart enough to bring the creators in to, to really tell the story and not let Hollywood kind of mess it up, you know? And with a lot of these characters, you know, some of them, like, it's obscure characters that are, you know, A-list names now. Like, you take a group, Groot's a household name now. Isn't it crazy? And out of all the characters, who do you think is going to be the next big name that, you know, com hardcore comic fans know it now, but it's going to be like five years from now, there's going to be t-shirts and stuff like that. Like myself, I go with Moon Knight. People are going to know who Moon Knight is in five years, and that's so weird to say. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I look at what's coming up, and you don't, like, it's weird. Like, even, so we, you know, because I get to work with Marvel, I get to go see screenings of the movies before they come out. And I remember going to see Guardians of the Galaxy, and I, I think I put online somewhere, I told a friend, I said, this movie is going to be bigger than the Avengers. And because at that point, it was only the first Avengers movie I think had come out. And right. a friend of mine was like, no way. I don't even know who the Guardians of the Galaxy are. It's not a thing. And this is a friend who um, he writes the unofficial guidebook to Walt Disney World and Disneyland. So, like, he's all about Disney. Now they have a Guardians of the Galaxy ride in Disneyland. <laughs> you know, like, this is the guy say, who's telling me nothing. It's never going to happen. It's, nobody knows who this is. So, you know, you never know. What to, who knew that Iron Man was going to be a big thing? Yeah. You know? Um, I say the Pet Avengers are going to be the next big thing. That's my choice. It's it's funny because also like like Lockjaw. Lockjaw is going to be a name soon. It's so weird. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the series did any big. I don't think the. Um, I don't know. I mean, did that show? How, I don't even remember how. How I guess the show didn't do well, right? Oh, the show was terrible from what I've heard. Oh, although it? my best friend loved it, and I'm just like, really? But then again, he liked Fantastic Four 2015. But I digress. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so I, you know, you never know where it's going to come from. Um, I, I think if they ever decide to do like a Miss Marvel, I think that might be a big thing. Um, Kamala is going to have her show on Disney Plus, from what I've heard. Is that what it is? I know. Uh, again, I, I don't keep up with a lot of this stuff. I mean, I, maybe because I know I should. I, I'm not allowed to talk about it, so I can't even. I don't even inquire about it. Mm. But um, that'd be, I think that would be a hit. I think, you know, it'd be a, a great, I mean, it did great with the book. I mean, everybody seems, it, the numbers were great. And people talk about it all the time. Like when people ask what Marvel comics you should give to young kids, uh, Miss Marvel comes up. So, I've actually been uh, binge reading uh, the series recently, and it's, it's pretty damn phenomenal. Oh, and, good. You know, it, it's kind of funny because, like, I'm watching that uh Kevin Feige did this uh, thing that I think San Diego and D23, and it's on Disney Plus. It's like, you know, I think 15 minutes long, but it's talking about the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And he's talking about the characters like they're, you know, like he sounds like an announcer at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade talking about the balloons coming up. And, you <laughs> yeah. know, when, when he gets into Moon Knight, it's just like, and here comes Moon Knight. Yes, Moon Knight. He's known yeah. for three characters. But remember, he only worships Khonshu. Coming up next, <laughs> it's uh, SpongeBob SquarePants. It, it's so weird just hearing him describe them, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping, I mean, here's the hope that I have, because growing up on the Burn FF, I do hope Marvel kind of pulls in the FF and really does it right. I mean, now, that would be a, we, for me, that would be the thing. Episode. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say that was the that would be the book that I would love, uh, the 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 movie I'd love to see a Fantastic Four movie done like right. Now a few weeks ago we had uh, Tom Scioli of the Fantastic Four Grand Design, and we asked him how he would bring the Fantastic Four into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right. How would you do it? Wow. Um... Well, I would think, you know, you'd sort of do it the way it really was in the beginning, but to sort of turn it a little bit more modern, it's, you know, the the the, the scientist who's a little bit in his own little world. Um, maybe he's in, like, these government programs where 
he's getting nowhere and the politicians are, are keeping him locked down and he decides, you know, we need to go test this out. And, and I think it should follow Stan and Jack's original story. They should go into space. They get, I mean, it doesn't have, you know, cosmic rays and sounds very 50s and 60s sci-fi. But, you know, there's a ray that comes by that, you know, transforms them. And um, I think if you keep that family aspect and you, um, you know, I think they should, instead of going straight to Dr. Doom this time, I think they should start with Mole Man. I think they should start the way it was yeah. in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, and just like sort of that. have, like, somebody come from, you know, the Earth fights back type of storyline. You know, you could turn it into, like, a, a climate change kind of story where, um, you know, they uh, the Earth is fighting back against the people who are doing it, and the FF has to save the day. Um, but, yeah, I mean, br- smarter minds than mine should, should, should be writing this thing. Um, My uh, dream version is, like, bring them in, but it's, like, time travelers. So, like, you can still retain the uh, 1960s space race kind of aspect. Yeah, yeah. But have them, you know, come into our time as, you know, dimensional time travelers. Be interesting. But then you sort of add the the man in a time thing like Captain America. You want to do something a little different and sort of... Yeah. But, you know, again, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, they get get those, those, the scientists that are sort of, you know, not really focused on the world on the outside because they're so busy working on their own stuff, you know? I mean, look, hell, you could even turn him into the first autistic superhero, you know? Like, he just doesn't understand any of this stuff, but he's a brilliant, brilliant man. I mean, like, they, they say Einstein was probably autistic, you know? Why not? Why not have uh, Reed Richards, you know? I like the, There was a uh, discussion about, you know, when, you, when people were rereading the first issue of the Fantastic Four and just how Reed, Reed cannot read a room. And <laughs> it's like one of his recurring trends of who he is as a person. It's just, uh, Susie called me a thing of a man. I guess I'm the thing. And I'm the invisible girl. And I'm Mr. Fantastic. Yeah. Like, yeah. Everybody else is like, I'm, a, I'm useless. And he's just like, well, I'm just the greatest thing ever. <laughs> have, you ever yeah, uh, listened, have you ever listened to uh, Norm MacDonald's uh, version of the skit? No. Oh, it's so great. It was on he his... He talks about uh, the FF? And, uh, uh, say it again? He talks about the FF? Yeah, he does a skit of, like, all of the Fantastic Four making their names, and he goes, all right, so, I, you know, like I just said, you know, with, uh, I'm a thing of a man, and then you just can go, and I'm Mr. Fantastic. <laughs> wow. Really, Reed? What? Oh, well. Uh, <laughs> what about just Mr. Stretchy? And it just goes on, and they just riff on him the entire time. And he's like, no, I'm Mr. Fantastic. Yeah, that is. I will say that is. That, that's why they always, every movie so far they've tried to get rid of that name, you know, and sort of not talk about it, not say it. I believe the as bad as it was, the 2015 one did have one element of it that I kind of liked, and that was like the Cronenberg body mutilation aspect of it. You know, where you see Reed laying on a gurney or on you know a a table, and they're pulling his arms, and they're like, "How far can we stretch this guy?" Like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot they could do. I, I, I think, obviously, in, in Kevin's hands, you know, they'll they'll find a way to tell this the right way. I just, like I said, that's the first Marvel book. It's, you know, the Marvel Age book. It's the first book I really loved, I fell in love with. So I would love to see them get their their day in the sun. Have you ever seen the uh, Roger Corman one? I saw bits of it back in the day. Um didn't the guy who played Johnny Storm, didn't he play the uh, the boy who could fly? You ever see that movie? I haven't seen that, but I know he was in Uncle Buck. Oh, okay. 
right. Yeah. And it's it's not that bad. We we actually did uh, during our fantastic February last year. We talked about the movie and. It's straight up cheese, but it's it's funny because it's the most loyal to the story. See, now with the special effects, forget it. I mean, we should be able to do that loyal to the story and still make it look fantastic, right? Absolutely. Oh, Fantastic Four! I don't get it. I don't get the joke. <laughs> Couldn't see that one. Okay, thanks, Sue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, before we wrap this episode up, Chris, we want to say thank you for doing the show today. Of course. And before we go also, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Uh, The best way is on Twitter. It's Chris Eliopoulos. If you can spell it or find it, it's the easiest way to get me. All righty. So for The Marvelous, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Chris Eliopoulos. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. Obsessed with Marvel with our guest, Chris Eliopoulos. Thanks, Chris. Good luck. Yeah, I'm going to fail miserably, but let's go. Three or, just, yeah, three or four multiple choice questions, and hopefully we're not too bad off. And it's uh, question number 427, which reads like so. Richards, um, where was Peter Parker's favorite place to go with his friends in college? Was it Coffee A Go Go, The Coffee Bean, The Daily Grind? Or the ESU Student Lounge? I'll read it again. Where was Peter Parker's favorite place to go with his friends in college? Coffee a go-go. The Coffee Bean. The Daily Grind. ESU Student Lounge. I gotta go with the lounge, no? I'm kind of inclined towards that, but... Coffee Bean was... Because I remember seeing that in the series, in the Amazing Run, and Coffee a go-go was the one that uh, the X-Men go to. Was it? Okay. So, Eddie, well, to you. where do you lie with that answer, do you think? I'm a bean man. You're a bean man? Well, I think, well, we kind of instinctually thought letter D, the ESU student lounge, so let's try that. And no, the answer <laughs> is the coffee bean. Way to go, Peter. Thank wow. you. Wow. Okay. These little, these little persnickety details, I tell you what. All right, let's flip ahead. Page turning action as we... Okay, 707. That's a new Mego feature I didn't think existed. Uh, which villain's son and daughter appeared in Marvel Team-Up 39 and 40, back to 1975? Which villain's son and daughter appeared in Marvel Team-Up 39 and 40? Green Goblin and Mendel Strom... Green Goblin and Crime Master, Big Man and Crime Master, or Vulture <laughs> I know, or Vulture 1 and Vulture 2. Which villain's son and daughter appeared in Marvel Team Up 3940? Green Goblin and Mendel Strom, Green Goblin and Crime Master, Big Man and Crime Master, Vulture 1 and Vulture 2. This would be a uh... You go first. I have no clue. Uh, yeah, I'm kind yeah. of complete guess on this. I don't know which villain. Who's the first one again? Green Goblin and Mendel Strom. Is Mendel Strom a war criminal? Mm, maybe. <laughs> I hope you're being somewhat serious here. No, I don't. Ah, I don't know. It's kind of like, I, I don't know. You, you've got two possibilities with Green Goblin. You've got two possibilities with Crime Master. What was 
the second choice? Green Goblin and Crime Master. Uh, I'm going to take that just because they're everywhere. Yeah, same. <laughs> okay, let's go with B. And no, the answer is Big Man and Crime Big Master. Man. <laughs> you know, I can't even recall. I can't recall unless we, of course, quickly look it up on our phone what the covers to those issues would be. Not that that would completely help us at this point, but okay. So flipping years, years ago on the topic of uh, the name Big for somebody, all I can think of is my friend Jordan, who uh, we went to this thing called Harbor Fest in Oswego, New York, and the, we were trying to go towards a boat. And Jordan's like a, you know average build person, and he walks up to the boat, and the guy in charge of the boat just goes, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, big guy, no, no." <laughs> Jordan had a George Costanza-ish meltdown throughout the whole day. He goes, big man, big man, or no, big guy, big guy. I don't get it. I'm not that big. So every time I see him, I go, hey, big guy. Thank you, Peter. All right, now that we're up to number 2094, who successfully sabotaged Howard the Duck's presidential campaign? And the first choice is, I could probably spell it better than say it, but it's Bizja. As in B Z Z K apostrophe J O H. Then there's Lee Beaver, Doctor Bong, or Reverend June Moon Yuck. It's the last two because I read a, uh, Howard the Duck fairly recently. Yeah, well, so there's no really answer fresh. that says C and D, so it has to be one. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's between those two. You think who successfully sabotaged Howard the Duck's presidential campaign? Are we talking about the first run, the original run? Yeah, the Steve Gerber stuff. I want to say it's, I want to say it's Dr. Bong, just because it ties into his uh, background as a uh, political writer. That's the only character that I recognize name-wise, but that doesn't mean anything per se. I want to say it's follow your lead because it also ties into that. Okay, so we're thinking we're going we're thinking about going with Dr. Bong. Yeah. All right. Let's try letter C. No, we are 0 for 3. The letter, it is Le Beaver. That's the answer. I think that's a wash. Better read. Uh, Richards, uh, shall we just really either, either bury the hatchet or just try and maybe salvage one question? And let me just try getting up to question number 1,978. That's a lot of steps. Sure is. What a year. Okay. 1978. What is the name of Foggy Nelson's younger sister? Oh, my God. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we have the choices of Jill, Arlene, Francis, or Candace. Foggy Nelson's younger sister. Which Does that mean she has the same last name? I don't know. Jill, Arlene, Francis, or Candace? Candace. I'm just... Pulling That's butt. where I'm going. Yeah. I don't know yeah. why. Letter D, please. Yes. yes. We got one out of four. Save what the a day. Happy accident. Thank you very much.